Yes, you've arrived at the Legend Podcast at DaxMyHand.com. How did I become a legendary sports figure? How does anyone become legendary? It starts with a coach. Join us as we have conversations with coaches of all ages, experience, and expertise, and find out what does it take to lead athletes to legendary status. We're here with Chris Hicks, uh, former, probably best known as the uh, former baseball coach at Reedland High School. Chris, good to have you here today. Glad to be here. Awesome. Well, Chris, let's put everything aside and cut right to the chase. Tell us about when you first met the legend. That would be me. (laughs) That would be Dax Mahan. I guess uh, I was umpiring baseball out at Noble Park, and you were in probably Adam League. And I saw this left-handed pitcher out there, and he was mowing them down left and right. You probably don't even remember that. You, but. you know, it's funny because when I spoke to Shane before we got started, I told him we told him that you and I had spoke, and I said, "I'll be honest with you, I don't know what Chris is going to say about when <laughs> did he first meet me." You know, and then I can't I, remember. And then I met you later, of course. You know, on, when you played basketball and baseball at Marshall, when I was coaching. Uh, against you in baseball and then through your brother and your parents so yeah so we've, we've got a long history with each other and our families and and know each other so we're really really happy to have you on the podcast today so i tell you what let's go back and let's get do some bio on you and talk about uh how you got started in sports so just maybe you know go back and fill us in on where you went to school how you got involved in sports and some of your background i wound up going to saint mary high school and uh, played with a lot of good players. I played for Denny Potts and Richie Durbin. And, you know, I learned a lot about the game from them. And we had good teams there. And that's when I kind of decided that I wanted to go to school and be a teacher and a coach. Uh, then from there, I was lucky enough to make the American Legion team. And I got to play for Doc Heidig and then – I got to go to PCC and I played for Tony McClure and I wound up getting to go on to the University of Tennessee at Martin and play two years there for Vernon Prather. And then I was able to get my first job and start coaching and that just kind of how it all fell into place. Yeah. Yeah. You, you had a, a really pretty distinguished group of coaches that you played with. You played for Tony McClure at PCC That's back when it was before it was WKCTC. Correct. I tell you, I thank the world of Coach McClure. I learned. More work ethic from him probably than anybody else because we would always start practice and we would start practice at 1 o'clock. And there were many days that 6 o'clock fire alarm would go off and we would still be out there and would go on after that. You know, when the fall season came around, local kids, kids from all over came because there, there wasn't many opportunities for kids to play beyond high school at the junior college level uh and he never cut anybody but let me tell you what i learned how to weed people out from him because we ran like forrest gump we ran and we ran and we ran and uh he was a, a very good fundamentalist he knew how to he had so many kids he hadn't he had no assistant coach and he knew how to organize practice where he had people busy all the time and he was a very good 
uh, instructor on base running. I learned probably, well, I know there's no doubt about it, more about base running from him than any other coach that I'd played for. Correct me if I'm wrong, but was he not also the basketball coach at that time? He was the assistant boys coach, but then later he became the – uh, well, at that time, he was the head girls basketball coach. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I can't fathom that with recruiting and, you know, I don't know how much recruiting he had to do, but I mean, still any recruiting was for two sports right. was, was a pretty and big then he, deal. He helped with American Legion team, you know, yeah. there too. So yeah, he did. He, I know he came out with us. Uh, we were off the mic. We were talking about a trip he made to Saxton with us, you know, kind of as a, uh, one time when Doc couldn't make it and he came as the adult supervisor and we had a good time with Tony. And- but see, uh, you know, I think that's one of the important things about coaching is that a lot of the guys that coached me, well, the things that they did beyond coaching, whether it was the fundraising or working on the field or this or that, that lets kids know that that, that guy's in the trenches with you. You know, I've had administrators when I was teaching school that you know, they kind of had the bunker syndrome. You didn't ever see them out. You know, you kind of felt like you were out there on an island that they wanted you to do everything. And if you don't see someone rolling up their sleeves and putting in the same effort that you are, it just kind of makes you think, why? You know, so when, when a kid sees a coach working on a field, doing all the other things that it takes to run a a program, whether it's baseball, basketball, football, or whatever, kids recognize that, and that makes them want to buy into what you're trying to get them to do. And I think that's very important. You know, one thing that just occurred to me kind of while you are talking about that with Coach McClure helping with the Legion, in the era where you grew up and, and even when I was playing Legion ball, there was a real sense of community baseball. The coaches kind of a – you know, yeah, you're coaching against Coach Mizell or whatever, but you're also friends with these guys. You want to beat them, and they want to beat you. But at the end of the day, it was about the kids and getting the kids on to further opportunities in college or whatever. And I know Coach Mizell used to come out to the Legion a lot. You would come out to the Legion. Uh, you know, Coach Troutman would come out to the Legion. And, and so there was just a real a real sense of doing whatever it took to make the kids of McCracken County at that time or Western Kentucky be successful. Can you talk, speak to that a little bit? Well, Coach Mizell did probably more for high school baseball than anybody else, you know, in this area at that time. Along with you know, Coach Burkeen, Richie Durbin, they got started the first junior varsity baseball programs. Baseball, high school baseball just wasn't really that big of a thing, you know, in the late 70s. You know, Jim, he got the JV programs going and then grass infields and nice uniforms and having tournaments. And that just wasn't really heard of. He had a lot to do with high school baseball. And then, you know, Coach Troutman, all the success he had at Tillman. And and see, when you're young like I was – was <laughs> and, you, and oh, you still look pretty you good. know getting started out you know i mean jim and i used to we painted together uh we worked at noble park swim pool together I, I mean i was the assistant coach for him one year but you look up to those guys you know you played against them now you're coaching with them you're coaching against them you look up to them you know you want to have the same success that they've had and i remember you know after in in 91 when we went into extra innings and we and we beat Lone Oak on a suicide squeeze you know Jim was hurting 
But by golly, he came up there with tears in his eyes, and he gave me a big hug because he was happy for me. Yeah, you know that's. I don't know today that may not go on, you know, but but we cared about each other. Yeah, uh, and that, and that's one of the things that made it so fun. Yeah, it was it was special because you know I remember uh, maybe my sophomore or junior year, you know, the coach at Lone Oak, who I didn't really know him very well then, you know, he comes into the Legion dugout sits down and tells me something he sees in my swing that he you need to look at this or you need to do this and i'm thinking why is lone oaks coach who we compete against helping me but it was about helping the kids you know and that i think that's that's a big deal now move on into a little something we touched on earlier you're talking about the psychology of baseball um and you know one thing uh, I think you kind of hit on is when a kid says he's struggling and you pull him aside and speak to him. And, you know, baseball is a sport where three-quarters of it is between your ears. And, you know, high school baseball is tough because with the rain and things you get in the spring, you might only get one game in this week. And if you go for four and you're not hitting the ball well, you may have to sit on that for a week, and, and it can get into your psyche and eventually turn into a slump. But talk about you know some of the things you would do uh, from a psychological standpoint to help your players or, or go through some of that. Well, I guess you know team wise, probably a lot of people don't like Bobby Knight, but I'm gonna tell you I like Bobby Knight. I may not agree with some of the things he did. You know, one of the things that I got from Bobby Knight was that you put your kids in practice and you put all the pressure on those kids that you can in practice. You put them in all the situations that you can in practice, and then the game becomes easier. I'm not going to say easy. I was pretty mean, and, you know, we ran a lot, and I wasn't going to – I was going to make sure that if, if a kid stuck through everything that I put them through, they wanted to play. You know, when when kids have never been pushed and they don't know how how far they can be pushed or what they can do, you run 20 double times, we're going to run 25 today. And that's one of the things Tony McClure did. He made you psychologically tough. Uh, and that's I think that's important. I think it was very important. It had a lot to do with what, with what those kids were able to achieve. But then on the uh, lighter side of things, and let's face it, as parents, we put a lot of pressure on our kids. And that kid wants to be successful. He wants to do good for mom and do good for dad. And when that kid's getting it at home, and a lot of times you kind of have an idea of that's going on, you know, and you got to be a good judge of people. And I think I always was. And you kind of know when you got to take that kid aside and put your arm around them and stroke them up a little bit and, and let them know that you're there. And even if you make something up, you know, to say, hey, you're not swinging the bat because you're doing this. And it may be a bunch of malarkey, but that kid might think, hey, this is what's wrong with me. And then they get a hit and then they've got confidence. You know, so it's there is a whole lot of 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 the psychological part to it, and it's not only individual, but it's team wise as well. You know, we from a psychological standpoint, we talked about uh, before we got here about how much fun we had playing baseball. And one thing, and I think you'll probably agree with me on this. One great thing about baseball is 
the fun you can have is kind of a psychological tool with the amount of downtime you have. And, and so we'll talk about that. It's some, maybe some of the things you did to, to have fun with the kids, or if you can think anything off the top of your head. <sighs> I remember I used to drive the bus and I hated driving the bus and, uh, the kids would be on the bus. And every time we met another school bus, I would just kind of raise my hand up like an Indian chief and the kids would mock me, <laughs> you know, and, yeah. uh, you know, just little things like that. Or if something happened at school, uh, that was funny, maybe a kid went out with a girl or something. And of course I would find out about it. Of course I always loved and aggravating my students and aggravating the players and, Everybody would needle each other, and and then I'd give them nicknames, and just, and that's that's part of building relationships with kids, whether it's a student or a player, you know, having fun with each other. Yeah, and you know that's something that I think a lot of that's lost on this generation of people. Uh, I know. Uh, I had a kid a few years ago, and you know, I'm I'm kind of like you. I give them nicknames. Uh, I needle them about things. Well, we were kidding uh, a kid about something. I won't go into details, but we, we were kidding with him a little bit. And his dad come up to me and said, hey, uh, he doesn't like to be kidded. And I said, well, I, let me just talk to you like this. If I'm kidding him, that means I, I like him. I like him, absolutely. You, you know, and, and when when I quit talking to you. I'm done. That's exactly <laughs> right. You know, we're, and that, that's I find that in a lot of coaches. The, the time to be worried is not when they're on your rear end or, or when they're kidding you. It's when you don't hear anything from them. When you go up there and dead silence, you realize, I think I've hit a bad spot. You know, going back to uh, – I, I want to go back to the psychology talking about Coach Knight. That was one thing, and you hit it exactly. I, I read a season on the brink, and one of the things I remember them talking about was how he wanted to make every practice so hard that the games were easy, that that every game would be easier than any practice he'd ever been through. And I remember, you know, as a I was a I guess I was a college student when you were coaching my brother, and I remember watching your practices, and I thought, man, he really is a mean guy, you know, running <laughs> them, and and I was a little intimidated by you, scared of you, and then it was funny, you would walk off the field and you would come be nice to me off the field, and I'm like, oh, and I realized, well, I don't play for him, so <laughs> so he's, he's good good with that, you know. I'm talking about psychology there a while ago, I left this out, but it doesn't do me any good to. Uh, go out when a pitcher's not throwing strikes and chew that kid's rear end out on the mound. You know, that's when you go out and you might make some kind of stupid joke and get their mind off of it and pat them on the rear and say, hey, man, just focus and get the job done. Let me interrupt you right there because you just hit on a point that Doc talked about. And and one thing he had said was is that he never wanted to embarrass a kid on the field. Can you talk about that? That's a great no, place to go I mean, with that. You don't yell at kids for a physical mistake uh, because that kid's wanting to be successful. I don't know anybody that ever missed a ground ball on purpose. You know, I don't know anybody that ever struck out on purpose. That's not anything that's to be addressed at by yelling and screaming. And when when you're in the heat of the battle and you're in a big game, if you're over there as a coach and you're – losing it what are your kids gonna do now i might have been losing it on the inside and i guarantee you 99 percent of the times i was but i was not gonna give away my emotions outwardly to where my kids could sense that now a mental mistake that's different 
that's something that I would address on the field. You know, if it's a kid that didn't get a, you know, didn't want to get a signal uh, or maybe defied me because there have been plenty of times where a kid didn't want to bunt and they would purposely foul it off. And you know what? They got the bunt with two strikes on them. And, and isn't it, doesn't it always seem it's that bunt that they defy? That, yeah, or the take sign. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. We, uh, Shane and I have talked about that, that, that that seems to be the one thing that the kids just don't want to do. They don't want to bunt. But go on. Uh, so, you know, that's that's part of knowing knowing your team and that was just part of my philosophy or it was, whether it was right or wrong that you you put those kids in the situations in practice and you know especially before the regional tournament or the district tournament you had to win there to get to the regional but I was really a bear at that point of the year and I paid attention to detail and we were going to go over over everything over and over and over again because if we were going to lose it wasn't going to be because I didn't cover something that should have been covered that came up in a game and got us beat mm-hmm. you know when you get to that point those kids have got enough pressure on them they don't they don't need to be yelled at that's mm-hmm. the wrong thing to do yeah. you know you just it, you've done all you can do you know, it's like with my 19-year-old. I've done all I can do. He's got to figure it out on his own now. Well, you know, one thing you just hit on, and I remember being at your practices during, before the regional and and watching you, you know, and how the way you coach may be different than, you know, how Coach Shelton, who coached me at Marshall, uh, kind of the differences. But one thing, did you find it difficult because the high school season is so short and you don't really have a lot of practice time. Was that one, a major issue with you, or did you get enough time? Well, you know, I'm, when I made my schedule out, that's one of the things I learned from Coach Potts. Coach Potts was going to give up playing as many games and make sure you had practice time. I was going to make sure I had practice time. We were going to have practice time. I don't care. Well, I didn't invent it another day in the week. Mm-hmm. But we were going to practice. And if it rained, we were in the gym hitting wiffle balls and working on pickoff plays or you know, or doing something. Uh, because you, practice is where you win the games. Now, granted, kids have to take the game home with them. And if they're not a student of the game – and if they don't have that desire to take the game home with them and, and uh, you know, hit off the tee or whatever it is, hit wiffle balls in the yard with their dad or whatever, then you're probably not going to have a very good team. Mm-hmm. You know, so, and like in the professional life, sometimes you got to take the job home with you. Yeah. I had kids that had that will to win and that desire, and it, it all boiled down to the kids. You know, I tried to lead and maybe – you know, decided we need to bunt or steal or who to pitch or this. But that kid was the one swinging a bat. I never I never hit a three-run homer to win a game. I never struck a guy out with the bases loaded in the full count. That kid's the one that did that. Yeah. Yeah, That's. I think that's a good point about practice. It seems like this this age of baseball that I see – it's it's more and even and even summer basketball, you know, basketball now is a year around sport. It seems like it's just game after game after game. And and you know, you I have to wonder to myself, you weigh playing games versus good practice. And and that's to me is one of the most one of the biggest questions a coach has to ask. And himself. I'm glad you hit on that point about year round sports. We as coaches 
and I, I can remove myself from that because I haven't done it for a long time, but we as adults and coaches and parents have created that year-round atmosphere. It used to not be that way in in the time that I grew up, and it wasn't that way in the early 90s or through the 90s up to maybe the latter part. But coaches have so much pressure on them today. If they don't win, they're criticized, they lose their job. So they've got to try to get these kids that play basketball for them to concentrate on one sport. Football coaches have to try to get these kids to concentrate on one sport and be in the weight room. It's not their fault. You know, it's their job. But the bottom line is, to me, it was always about the kid. Is it fair for me to make this kid choose and pick one sport to play when he should be able to choose and play all three sports if he wants to? Because let's face it, all sports complement each other. Mm-hmm. And I detest that part about the way that our sports society has become. But it is what it is. Mm-hmm. You know, my boy being fixing to be a ninth grader, that's what we're running into. You know, you know, every sport's pulling at him. It seems like if he doesn't have baseball practice today, well, guess what? The football team has got practice. you got to go there. And so they, he never gets a day off. He's he's doing something every day. And, and you know, he's he's not up into the varsity yet, and so so he's still got a ways to go. But that that is a question that I'm having to ask myself. Well, I, I remember one of – I'm not going to mention any names, but one of, my, one of my real good ball players that I had one year, his dad and I, we were talking. He told me, he said – you know, looking back, I've made my son play this sport. I've made my son play this sport. I've made my son play this sport. It was all about me and my son seeing him play these sports. And you know what he said? My son never had a chance to grow up and be a kid. And that's that's the position that we put these kids in. And you look at it with the travel ball. And I'm not a big I'm not a travel ball person at all. When kids get to be to the age where they really should be playing the game and really learning how to play the game, they're burned out, you know, because they've traveled all over Hex Half Acre and they played 70 or 80 games and they haven't got to be a kid, you know. So there's a fine line and and somehow – parents and coaches need to try to find that fine line you know and i'm glad you say that because one of the criticisms of me as a travel coach has been that i don't play enough you know and i'm like you 60 70 games is way too many to play um you know i I think probably the most any of my teams have played is 40 ish you know we have we're done usually by the beginning of july we, we try to give our kids a couple months before they go back right. to school. And and I think that's important because you don't want to burn these kids out because you see, I mean, you see it with lots of teams that play, you know, when, when we were coming up through the younger ranks, you know, eight, nine years old, I heard of kids in, in this area playing 120 games in a summer at like eight years old. That's ridiculous. Can you fathom that? Well, but it's a, it's a reality. That's where it becomes it's all about the parent and not the kid. That's what it is. And sorry to say, but I'm just going to say it anyway. Uh, what you have in a lot of coaching situations at that level is a, a frustrated athlete that couldn't play mumbly peg when they were growing up and they're living their life through their child. Yeah. And hence, there you go with the 120 games and – Kids, they're playing. They're not being taught anything. Then they get to high school, and 
they don't know anything about the game, whether it be football, basketball, baseball, soccer, or whatever. But they got a lot of trophies. But they got a lot of trophies. And they feel good about themselves. <laughs> That's right. There. Participate. You've been listening to part one of Dax's interview. To hear the rest of the interview, click on to part two at DaxMyHand.com. <laughs>